in the back. It's your, <clears throat> your gift to us all is to help the volume stay up. So this talk tonight will be on mindfulness of breathing uh, and the first foundation of mindfulness, which is mindfulness of the body. And there is a, a supportive handout if you haven't gotten one yet, um, just outside the door. And it has um, these 16 steps of meditative development um, on it and some of my translations um, to try to help them be accessible. So I was doing a little bit of uh, research, which was just kind of fun to poke around in the Pali Canon at different uh, discourses the Buddha gave on mindfulness of breathing. And I came across one I'd never uh, seen before. If I had, I hadn't remembered. Um, There's one discourse where at the beginning of a three-month rains retreat, um, all the monks and nuns, they, they have to stay put for three months while there's heavy rain in Asia. So they collect and they have to actually dedicate themselves to one place for three months. And then the other nine months they're allowed to wander. Um, but for three months they all uh, have, to be, um, have to choose a location and stay put. And this one time uh, at the very beginning of a three-month rains retreat, the Buddha announces that he's going to spend the entire three months in seclusion. And I'd never heard that the Buddha had done that before. You know, I figured his time was uh, precious and he took every opportunity to teach. But seeing that the Buddha would also take time for his own practice, um, I find that interesting. Um, and so he says, the only person that will interact with me will the person uh, bringing food. Other than that, I'm going to do my own practice for these three months. And then when he came out, he called the monks together and he said, if anybody asked what I was practicing for those three months, it was mostly mindfulness of breathing. And then I practiced these 16 steps. Now this is already someone who's free and quite free, quite uh, amazingly free. But he uh, said to his uh, students, I practice these 16 steps. Now he's not practicing them in order to become free, but even a mind uh, that um, had come to the end of its confusion um, still appreciated the practice. And there are stories of other people who became free and kept practicing afterwards Although not, it's hard to understand why they would keep practicing unless um, they really enjoyed the discipline of the practice or um, keeping the mind in good shape. So he practiced mindfulness of breathing and he told his uh, followers, um, if as you wander on after these three months and people ask you, uh, what did the Buddha do for the three months? He said he practiced these 16 steps of mindfulness of breathing. And then he ended that discourse saying, um, for whatever one rightly speaking would call a noble dwelling, a Brahma dwelling, 
And Brahma is, uh, in India at that time, would be one of the highest states of achievement. Or a Tathagata dwelling, that's how the Buddha referred to himself. It would be the samadhi of mindfulness of breathing. And so the word dwelling there uh, is this word vihara uh, in Pali. And so what is the home, what is the dwelling, the, the home, the dwelling place of the heart of a Buddha, the heart of a Brahma, the heart of a noble one? And it's the samadhi created by mindfulness of breathing. So that doesn't mean that mindfulness of breathing is something that we do in order to become free, but even after becoming free, it's the place that the Buddha um, would call his dwelling, mindfulness of breathing. So I never actually, I'd heard this um, pointed to in conversations, but I never actually had read the discourse. So it kind of popped out. So that's my little treasure to myself today. (laughs) It's actually discovering that discourse. When I was in uh, Burma, uh, I ordained with two different uh, great teachers, Saida Upandita and Paok Saida. And I practiced mindfulness of breathing with both of them. But uh, with Saida Upandita, he, had a, he was combining mindfulness of breathing both for the samadhi that it could develop, but also to be very investigative while I was doing it. And I went to work with uh, Paok Saida afterwards and he had a very different take on uh, the development of mindfulness of breathing. And it took me a couple of months of uh, practicing with him and talking to his students to understand the way that he was approaching mindfulness of breathing and suggesting it. And it had a huge impact on me. Um, and I was kind of surprised that I learned about happiness that late into my uh, Buddhist path. They say the Dharma is good in the beginning, the middle, and the end. And I thought I kind of got the bad Dharma because my Dharma wasn't so good in the beginning and it wasn't so good in the middle, but I had this great promise that at the end it was going to get great. But the way I had been practicing, um, unbeknownst to me, was not very balanced. There was a lot of striving. There was a lot of, um, it was up to me to get free, so I felt very burdened by my practice. And... Um, it's been lovely to teach on this retreat with, uh, with Kamala because Kamala was my teacher at one point and was uh, teaching me more about faith and relaxation and ease as a way of getting free, not as the final uh, taste of freedom. So when I got to work with Pauk Saida, <clears throat> I got to learn more about uh, joy and ease as things we cultivate as we go and not some type of uh, prize at the end of the path. But the taste of the path can be the cultivation of joy and ease and wholeness. Um, So I want to go into the discourse a little bit um, and also talk about the practice of mindfulness of breathing and then also mindfulness that begins to... um, come down appreciatively into the body and become aware of this alive, amazing animal body that we live in. So 
So in the Anapanasati Sutta, the one that's called the Anapanasati Sutta, there are actually many discourses where the Buddha talked about these 16 steps or about combining them with uh, the four foundations of mindfulness. And the one that's most famous, um, the Buddha is spending three months with all the monastics as they do every uh, range retreat. And at the end of it, he looks around and he has some of his greatest students with him. And they're all teaching uh, students and everybody's making good progress. And he looks around and he said, this is a beautiful Sangha. And we've practiced together for three months. And after three months, we usually scatter and wander. Um, but I would like to add one more month of concerted effort because we have such good momentum. I'm kind of paraphrasing the, the discourse. But uh, he, he turns to praise the, the community and he stays for one more month and then word gets around to all the other places people are doing rains retreats. And they hear that the Buddha is going to stay someplace for a month. Um, and so if they haven't been at his rains retreat place, they haven't been able to travel to see him. But now they know where he's going to be. He's going to be there for a whole month. And so people start get, um, coming from the countryside to where the Buddha is. And this is in the lead up to giving his discourse. He's kind of looking at the Sangha. He's happy with what he sees. He sees people practicing. And he begins the discourse by uh, talking to the group of practitioners and describing just how powerful the community is. And he says, in this community, um, we have people whose hearts are completely free and their work has been done to see through their confusion, to liberate themselves from their pain. And we have people who, are made, who have uh, made incredible uh, jumps and growth in that direction. He praises the Sangha, um, the community, for being free from prattle. So I think if the Buddha came here, he would see that we are remarkably free from external prattle, from talk and gossip and chatter. And he would see how much dedication you all have. Um, that's what he was seeing in his community after the rains retreat. And he said, such an assembly like this is rare for the world to see. And then before he gets into the mindfulness of breathing, there's another part just in the opening of this discourse that again, I find really interesting. He said, in this community of practitioners, there are people who have uh, become free and there are people who are dedicated to a variety of practices. He said, there are people who have been practicing the four foundations of mindfulness, the four right kinds of uh, effort, the four bases of spiritual power, the five faculties like James talked about, the five powers, the seven factors of enlightenment, noble eightfold path. So he also is pointing at like Sally's sheet <laughs> and saying this community is practicing all these various lists with great uh, devotion. So even back then he held up a sheet with many things and said, <laughs> It's complex, but people are really going for it and they're like taking on these lists and they're practicing with them. He said, in this Sangha, there are people who are practicing loving kindness and compassion and altruistic joy and equanimity. So these four Brahma Viharas that we've been practicing. There are people who have been meditating on 
uh, the non-beautiful aspects of what we crave, the body and food and other things. That's a deep, uh, sustained meditation, trying to open the heart up to the limitations of pleasure. And in the community, there are people who are practicing the perception of impermanence. So he looks around and he sees all these people practicing all these various uh, developments of heart and mind, of stability, of kindness, of insight. He said there are even people who are practicing mindfulness of breathing. But they weren't practicing mindfulness of breathing to the level of detail that he was about to give, but they were already dedicated to uh, sinking their attention into mindfulness of breathing. And then he comes into uh, the actual instructions. And of all the Buddha's discourses on mindfulness, there uh, are only a few that are as detailed as this discourse. There's the mindfulness of breathing discourse, and then the four foundations of mindfulness. And there, uh, there's a lot of meditative detail in how to slowly practice and extend your practice and novel ways to go in different directions to, to increase wisdom and understanding of how the heart and mind work. And so the mindfulness of breathing discourse starts out, um, those who practice mindfulness of breathing uh, and cultivate it, it is of great fruit and great benefit. When mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated, it fulfills the four foundations of mindfulness the other way that we develop mindfulness. And when the four foundations of mindfulness are cultivated and developed, they fulfill the seven factors of enlightenment. And those seven factors of enlightenment fulfill true knowledge and deliverance. So he's laying out that this mindfulness of breathing takes you all the way to full knowledge and deliverance. And who would know? Who would know that just this breathing process and starting to become more and more loyal and dedicated uh, and aligned with making awareness of breath could lead to complete eradication of delusion, complete freedom from what confuses us and ties us in knots, that the breath has the power to do that. And he gets into detail. He said, so the way to practice this, how do we achieve this great fruit and benefit We find a place where we can sit in quiet and we uh, sit down and then practice um, ever mindful breathing in, ever mindful breathing out, aware of one's breath. So that's the beginning of it. Breathing in, breathing out and being aware of it and making awareness of breath your highest priority. Even when I had done a lot of that, so before I went to Burma and ordained as a monk, I had done two um, three-month retreats. So I had done mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of the breath, but I got sort of really fascinated by the mind and how the mind was working. And so the breath was there, but it seemed like it was like a stepping stool that you stepped on and then it was all about the mind. And then I had to keep coming back to the breath and I wondered like, is this really going to free me from all my anxiety and doubts? It seems like a nice place to hang out, but how does it actually lead forward? I'm not sure. 
Um, so I had some doubts, but I would follow teacher's advice and keep going further out. And like, really, this is going to do it. And you really believe that if I just keep breathing and keep putting the breath as my highest priority versus all the other things I could be doing with the hours of the day for days upon days and weeks upon weeks and over the course of a year, that mindfulness of breathing would be a deliverance that it would deliver me from ways that my mind turns on itself and insecurities that feel very deeply rooted and pettinesses that I can never fully uh, keep in check. Really, this mindfulness of breathing, not just as soothing in the moment, but somehow that actually is a pathway to uh, full liberation. So you don't know it until you do it and see that it it does take you quite far. And for some people it is their full path, augmented by other practices like the Brahma Viharas. And for some people it's not the right practice. So I wanna say that as I'm going into this with enthusiasm, if you're not practicing it, please don't feel strain or doubt in the choice you've made about the way you're developing mindfulness. There are actually many ways to develop mindfulness. And there are many ways to develop mindfulness of breathing, as I've learned working with different teachers. So don't take the encouragement that comes from this talk as any type of uh, doubt, uh, agitator in your practice. You've chosen it for reasons. And all these practices, even like when the people were practicing with the Buddha, they were practicing the Brahma Viharas to great uh, depths. They were practicing other meditations. Mindfulness of breathing is one of them. But it also comes highly recommended. And it seemed to be the practice that the Buddha did whenever he was practicing. So um, when I got to the Pauk Monastery, um, what's unique about the Pauk Monastery um, is that <clears throat> There was, a, there was a revolution in Burma um, about 150 years ago as the British were taking over and they started giving people access to Vipassana practices, insight practices, before they had developed much stability of mind. And so they'd give them just a little bit of stability of mind and then give them over to deep insight practices. And the Pauk Monastery, um, they said, it's actually worth it to take the years it needs uh, to develop deep uh, samadhi, deep stillness and deep wholeness of attention before you start going in to do uh, these insight practices. At least that was his perspective. So that's how he trained. And so it actually uh, was an incredible opportunity to go into a monastery where people were um, practicing the Brahma Viharas for months, if not years, if that was their root practice or mindfulness of breathing, or mindfulness of body sensations, um, and really developing a, a, a deep, um, devoted meditative practice for months on end of a particular subject. So when I got there, I was uh, practicing mindfulness of breathing as I thought I should. And I was listening to his way of framing things, and it was different than the way my first teacher had framed it. So it took me a couple of months of listening and asking questions and changing how I was approaching it. Um, and I really didn't practice very in a very balanced way with my first teacher, Sayada Upandita. I got very assertive. I had a kind of a spiritual drive um, that agitated me. So I was constantly trying to calm myself down with too much um, 
controlling, striving effort which would agitate me. So I was caught in a in kind of a negative loop. And I ended up doing that for the first two months I was in this other monastery, even though I was giving a lot of permission to relax and to not, um, not agitate myself, to be more patient. But it took me a while to hear that that was actually allowed or what he was actually encouraging. Um, so Pauk uh, as Richard mentioned, um, he has, a, he has a brightness to him, he has a smile to him that's very infectious. Um, he has a lot of optimism. He really believes that people can get fully free and um, he kind of lives with that, uh, that sense. And so when you're around him, it's infectious. You think, yeah, this actually is doable. And I'm, it's fun to be around him. Um, and so day by day I would come in and I would be talking about my mindfulness of breathing and how agitated I was, and he was really puzzled. Like, why would this be agitating? Like, you you seem to be agitated all the time, but you're doing this mindfulness of breathing. I was like, I know, there are hindrances. My mind wanders, I'm attached to this, I'm attached to that. I'm trying to be with my breath, but the mind keeps fighting me and keeps pulling me back in. I'm, uh, he's like, wow. Uh, it's, and he'd just be encouraging, stay with it, stay with it. Um, and then one time, I, I, he didn't speak a lot of English, um, and he was using probably all the English he knew to try to help me. And at one point, <laughs> at one point he said, um, I'm going to tell you exactly how I want you to practice mindfulness of breathing. And I was like, okay, here it comes. Here is the teaching. And he said, practice like this. And they looked at me, and I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about, because it doesn't, I'm in there, and it's a wild mind, it's kicking, it's bucking, it won't, it won't do that. Like, but I started getting the clarity, that, like he's really encouraging me uh, to soothe myself, to practice in a way that's soothing. So um, I started following along and making mindfulness of breathing what I did the moment I woke up. I was aware of breathing. I, had, I couldn't do it all day long. It's a little bit too much only to do that. So sometimes I would be in my body or practice loving kindness just to kind of round out my experience. But I, you know, going on an alms walk, I'd practice mindfulness of breathing, waiting for people to put food in my bowl. I'd practice mindfulness of breathing. Um, whenever I could, walking around with my eyes open, I'd practice mindfulness of breathing. And that's sort of what it says in the discourse. So then we come into the, the steps in this, um, in the, what are called the 16 steps of mindfulness of breathing. There are 16 classical steps. And they're delivered in a linear fashion, but nobody ever experiences it in this linear fashion. So don't, ever, don't feel like somehow this should be like a step ladder where you put foot on, a foot on the first rung, then on the second, then the third. But there is something like building a pyramid where you do create a bit of a base and the more you stabilize a base, the better the next uh, layer will go. So the more you work with the first couple of steps, the, um, the more intuitive the next steps will be. And so the more time we spend with the breath and the body, the more our practice um, can continue to deepen. 
But if we try to go past the breath and body to something that's more interesting, then we haven't really created the base underneath us. So a lot of our practice um, is about these first couple of steps, and then at times extending further into the list. This is a list you can tuck under your uh, cushion if you're not doing mindfulness of breathing or if it seems like too much uh, information, but just to kind of follow along. The first encouragement is um, breathing in and breathing out. I'm aware when the breath is long, breathing in and breathing out. I'm aware when the breath is short. There are many ways to interpret that. Uh, many different schools have an angle in on that. Most of the schools that, um, that we're connected to believe that we really let the breath be natural. So the way to interpret those first two steps are, you're not just, I'm breathing in, I'm breathing out, but you have to, you have to follow a breath and sort of have fresh attention on the breath to get a sense of how long it is. Now you're not supposed to be there trying to measure each breath and trying to get a sense, was that one a little longer than the one before? Or would I call that a short one? It was long, but it wasn't very deep. So how would I categorize that? That's a little bit too much analysis. So the long and short breath means that the breath is not um, the exact same breath all the time. Although they're very similar, they can be. What you're doing is you're following the length of the breath the length, from its very beginning to its very end. And then as you breathe in all the way, come to a pause or not, breathe out all the way, breathe in all the way. And just watch out for becoming sort of a hypnagogic with a breath where you're kind of partly there, partly not. They're so similar, you're half checked in, half checked out. You try to um, gently summon uh, a fresh receiving of one breath at a time, just one simple breath at a time, humbly receiving one breath at a time over the length of that breath. And you try to see if you can connect how many breaths in a row you can. And eventually the mind wanders, you bring it back, start fresh over and over. Most people interpret, most people that we're connected to interpret uh, breathing in long, breathing in short is to encourage just continuity and fresh attention to the breath. And they're all, most of them are average and some are shorter than others, some are longer. From experiencing the breath as a field of sensations, stretching of your chest or cool and warm air coming out of your nose or how the actual viscosity of the air feels tumbling through your nose or the back of your throat or the way that it pushes down into your belly and then rises up again, or the way your shoulders move, your back moves, your torso moves. There's a field of sensations uh, with your breathing. And one of the great things about making the breath, um, building a connection to your breath, is that <clears throat> until you die, you'll be breathing. And so, other ways that you could meditate might not help you in the future because you might not be doing that form of meditation in the future. But no matter what the future entails, you'll be breathing when it happens. So if you can be somewhat connected and use the breath to help you stay uh, connected and embodied, 
then building a relationship with the breath means you've now given access to your entire future as one way of grounding yourself if you feel spun out by circumstances. And it's a way to kind of come back uh, to, the, to your breath. And it's a way to come back into the flow of the present is through that, through your breath. And the breath is already happening. So nice thing about it is you don't have to generate the meditative subject. Some visualizations, you have to create the visualization and then pay attention to it, which is two things of work. The breath is already happening and you're just aligning your attention with it and letting your animal body breathe as it needs to. If it wants short breaths or it wants to yawn or however it wants to breathe, you're letting the animal body breathe as it needs to. And then you're just aligning your attention to the very moment of the breath you're in uh, and appreciating that, again, for the length of the breath, as many breaths in a row as you can before the mind wanders. The next encouragement is experiencing the whole body. So the breath gives you access to part of your body and then you have an opportunity to, while you're breathing in and while you're breathing out, become aware of your whole body. The directions there is actually while breathing in, experiencing your whole body, and while breathing out, experiencing your whole body. So you're not putting the breath aside to then be aware of your body. You're using the stability and the intimacy you've created with your breath to land you in your body. And then you open up the field of your attention so that you can feel more of your body while you're breathing. And so the breath becomes a support rather than something you put aside. The breath supports you while you investigate other parts of your body where there are sensations that are not connected to breathing. There are many schools of how to do that, how to open up to your body. Some people breathe the length of their body, so they'll breathe down their leg, they'll bring up their leg, they breathe down this leg, and that's how they uh, use the breath uh, to explore their body, body sensations. Um, many of you might have known a teacher named Goenka who learned from his teacher, Uba Kin, to go carefully through the body, like as if you're putting your fingertip on different uh, areas of your skin and you go in a prescribed way through your body, seeing what sensations are there. And so that's how you experience your whole body is through sweeping your attention through your body. Um, so there are many ways, and the way that is best for you is the way that feels most uh, um, conducive for your opening your attention to your body. It could just be your breath with a little more peripheral awareness that you have shoulders and you have hips, and sometimes of the day you'll be able to breathe and feel your whole, uh, the whole length of your body. Other times it's too much to ask, your mind's a little tired and fatigued, and it's just good to be with your breath again. And then again, at some other time, you might feel a little bit wider than just your breathing sensations. Or you can try this body sweeping as a way. The thing that I learned in the Pauk Monastery was to enjoy the body. And that really was novel coming from Theravadan teachers uh, because I unfortunately entered the Dharma when a type of um, courageous austerity was sort of uh, um, 
it was just after sort of a peak when people were um, believing like you really challenge the body and you really get in there and really feel it. Um, so I had sort of, um, I don't know, a striving relationship in my body. I was going to know it. And it wasn't an appreciative patient attention. It was a disciplined, sweeping, scanning, uh, accuracy model. But in my way of approaching, it wasn't very patient. It wasn't very appreciative. Um, And that might have been the teacher's intent that I be more appreciative, but I didn't hear it. And uh, it didn't match onto how I was approaching my body at the time. So what I enjoyed about uh, working with Pauk and his, uh, his senior students and teachers was um, to start enjoying the body and then enjoying what's called the four element practice in the body, which means you take one of the four elements, uh, earth, wind, f- fire, and water. You take one of them like fire and you just you start appreciating temperatures in your body what parts of your body are obviously warm, what parts are cool, and then can you feel the ambient uh, places between them that are not particularly warm or particularly cool. So you take some time exploring your body, not with a disciplined strategy, but just where is it obviously warm? Where is it obviously cool? And then can I open up to other temperatures that are not, that don't stand out in either one of those extremes? And then move on to pulsing, the pulsing of your heartbeat, the moving of your breath, um, other ways that you feel pressures and movement in your body, that's the wind element. And then the water element is whether those other three elements, at least from Pauk's perspective, those other three elements cohered in one spot or had a type of spreading. And that was whether the water was spreading the fire element or whether it was cohering in one tight, hot spot. There was pulsing in one spot or where you felt the pulsing, rippling. The water element was whether sensations were spreading or sticking and cohering to one spot. And in that, I, it was a shift in my practice to approach this body like I was training a dog um, too st- uh, sternly, um, to one where I was, I was engrossed and curious about being in an animal that knew how to take care of itself with digestion and a heartbeat. And I was not beating my heart. My heart was beating and my body was breathing. And uh, I would get really hot and all of a sudden I'd feel this cool perspiration. I was like, it's thermoregulating, it's pulsing, it's digesting, it's taking care of itself. And I get to be in it and go on the ride of being in a live animal body. Like, this is so amazing. And that amazing uh, quality and the appreciative quality and the learning and I felt a type of uh, grace um, to be in an animal body was really supportive to not wandering. Didn't really want to wander as much because I had a front row seat to being inside an animal body. And it was fascinating. And that, w- that was a new way to practice. And I'm encouraging you to approach your animal that way. Be kind to it. Scratch it behind the ear, wash it, feed it, um, let it eat. Uh, but 
be in your animal uh, and be in awe of your animal and care for your animal body. Um, so there's experiencing the whole body and then there's calming any bodily activities you find. So that's the fourth step here. Now, what's really great about this list is first you experience the body before you calm it. Because if you try to calm it before you've really experienced it, you're forcing calmness onto the body. But you take some time to experience the body and you'll discover this is my body relaxed, but there is some tension in my shoulders. This is my body relaxed, but I'm noticing there's clenching in my jaw. This is my body. I'm noticing there's a protective gripping around my heart or there's a reluctance to breathe uh, all the way uh, into my torso. Then you can calm the body, but it's not by imposing something upon it. You're inviting it to be more relaxed. If you find your body's holding tension or bracing, every now and then I'm practicing meditation and I'm thinking about something and my mind wanders and I think about something, I get a little alerted about it and my um, arms will press down into my legs just to kind of brace my hand. I'll, I'll notice there's a little stress in my body because I'm bracing because the fantasy has gotten kind of intense. So then I feel it and then invite my body, you don't have to brace right now, it's a fantasy. We can relax. Bringing well-being to my body through calming. So first experiencing, then calming. First try experience something like a headache and then see if you can relax around the headache. Experience tension in your back or your neck. And then see if you can roll it out. Um, if you do it too quickly, it's more motivated by aversion to whatever your body is doing or clinging to some other mode your body might be in. Those four steps are a tremendous amount of what this practice and this tradition tends to develop upon. Uh, some grounding practice, some relationship to the body. There are those who carry um, uh, emotional patterns in their body and tension in their body. So we've recommended sound as a place to first find some balance and ease in the heart and the mind. And then you come towards the body and you can develop a, a relationship that way. But if, you, if uh, mindfulness of breathing gives you some anxiety, I used to have asthma. So if I was having a slight asthma attack and I was mindful of breathing, I was right up against this sort of closed bronchial and it would give me a sense of uh, trepidation. It wasn't the best place to try to regroup my mind to go into this bronchial closing slight asthma. Um, so you might need to use uh, awareness of sound to again first cool off the mind, give it some relaxing, some presence, and then come towards your breath, come towards your body, build a relationship. If the body is too energetic, then you can come back out to sound and then come back and uh, develop a relationship with the body that way. So this group of 16 is broke up, broken up into groups of four. Each group of four, four is called a tetrad. So the first tetrad is on the breath and body. The second tetrad, <clears throat> once you calm the body and it doesn't have uh, gripping, and it's more relaxed and open, circulation will improve. 
As circulation improves, you get to feel uh, more subtle sensations than if your body is either dull or contracted. So we come to the second tetrad and it says experiencing pity. We already talked a little bit about pity. Pity is a category of experiences that tends to be elevated energy. So you might feel that in different ways. People have different feelings around the way that uh, PT shows up. PT can show up as a subtle sort of buzz in the body. When it's balanced, it sort of feels like a tingling, um, nothing out of the ordinary, but the body feels sort of open, good circulation, some tingling. It can start to be uh, unordinary energy that feels like it's really tingling or you start to feel um, goose flesh um, where your hair stands on end. You can feel it sort of sweeping over your face or around your body. You can feel PT that arises and you feel very caffeinated and you feel very sort of bubbly in the body and the body feels a lot of delight and joy. So it can be positive. It also can be too much and you start to feel like there's too much energy in the body. It tends to lead to restlessness. Or you can get stuck energy where the energy is bubbling up but it sort of runs into a block and you start to feel like there's an energy block in your neck or around your eyes, other parts of your body. So it can be unpleasant. But it tends to be the body coming into a heightened sense of aliveness. Um, so there's, there's, very, there's not one good word that translates this uh, word PT because it's a category of experiences. But one way that I translate is uh, a type of aliveness that comes. Better circulation, the body's a little more peppy, um, the mind's a little more peppy, a little more bright. And that's the positive association. So once you calm the body and uh, your body is still relaxed and calm, then you go in and you start opening up to subtle sensations in your body that feel like there's good energy, good circulation in your body. And I never knew that that was something I was supposed to do. Um, I kind of just was being with the breath, being with the body, not choosing anything particularly. But feeling PT is, is helpful because it actually um, washes out a sense of heaviness in the body or the body feeling shut down. So you um, begin to appreciate tingling in your body as a body experience. And then there's experiencing, uh, step six, experiencing sukha. Uh, the Pali word, sukha, um, often is translated as happiness. It has the same Indo-European root as our word sugar. The S-U is the same. So it means sweetness. It means happiness. And where PT is an energizing factor that sort of awakens energy, sukha tends to be a little more... Um, relax and contentment. So I feel like sukha is a little bit more like uh, rocking on a chair, feeling content, feeling happy, and PT is a little bit more like uh, when caffeine first hits your blood and you realize you've had too much and it's like, wow. <laughs> what you want to have is actually a blend of these two. You want to have a, a type of contentment, but not a contentment that cools you down and you sort of uh, droop in happy, contented unconsciousness. And you don't want to have the energetic quality that makes you feel sort of skittish and uh, too caffeinated. So to the degree that we have any influence the, over these things, if you enjoy the aliveness in your body 
and you relax and feel some contentment in that aliveness, then you're experiencing the blend of PT and sukha. And these two factors end up being very supportive for developing further wholeness of attention. The PT brings the aliveness, the sukha brings the comfort and the ease, and that tends to help our attention uh, feel well-nourished and well-met in the flow of the present. Steps six, uh, step seven and eight. After uh, feeling this aliveness in the body, aliveness in the mind, happiness in the body, happiness in the mind, you then bring your attention to mental activity. It's called citta sankaras. And it's the habitual way as our minds work. It's the 300 gerbils on 300 squeaky wheels. And we're trying to get them to take a nap, but <laughs> we only get not so many to calm down and then others get up and start running. And you know, we have these habits. And what amazed me when I was in Burma, it's like, you really do not want to stop. Like I'm showing you a perfectly contented place to rest and you really want to keep squeaking. Like you want, I'm amazed that this mind is not tired of thinking. It's not tired of thinking. <laughs> and I learned the power of these sankaras, the power of the mind, like the mind, it's, it's amazing how much they want to keep moving. But you first experience them and then see if you can calm them, not by suppressing them, but inviting your mind to let go of whatever habits uh, have gotten up and running. One by one, inviting the gerbils off the wheel, take a little rest, less squeaking. And every now and then you get no gerbils on a wheel, it's really quiet. But then one wakes up and it's, it's back to the squeaking wheel. But here again, you experience it before you calm it. That's a lot like what Andrea was talking about last night. The courage to experience something before you try to intervene upon it. That's actually a strength of mindfulness to extend mindfulness into something that's uncomfortable or unfamiliar before you try to intervene upon it back towards your comfort. So you experience these mental activities, whether they're pleasant, unpleasant, or just uh, kind of boring, habitual ones. Get to know them a little bit, and then see if you can relax them in a way that's not suppressive or antagonistic, but again, inviting your mind to be more calm and collected So the first four we're doing a lot of, the next four we're also doing a lot of. Most of our practice will be uh, combining these eight practices of being aware of your breath, being aware of your body, opening up to uh, the flow of energy, relaxing that energy into something that's a little bit more contented but still awake, and then having a lot of mental activity because that's how we've trained our minds um, and learning to um, let go of these obsessions of mind, let go of the way the mind constantly is busy and giving it a, play, a little bit more uh, possibility of relaxing. If you're willing to do these, then the next steps are actually much more doable. Uh, the third and fourth tetrad. The third tetrad is about coming into samadhi, and we'll talk more about samadhi as a, as a practice. 
But <clears throat> samadhi is about making your attention whole so that it's not scattered, keeping track of 10,000 things or one thing like the breath, but keeping these things in the back of your mind, they're still active. It's letting the whole of your heart and mind be engaged in one direction. Um, they call it one-pointedness, and I found that the word pointed was too narrowing, uh, but and one common translation is trying to help the mind be one-pointed. It's To me, it's much more like one frame, one frame of attention. Um, my attention is looking in this one way. It's not scattered or pulled in all these different directions. So the third tetrad begins, now that the, the mental activity has quieted some, and when it has quieted some, that's a good time to begin experiencing the, the realm of the mind itself when it's not busy. So you're in your body, you're breathing in and out, mind activity has gotten quiet, and you begin to feel this sort of uh, spacious part inside, uh, which is the, the realm of mind. Uh, we know, usually know our mind by its activities, or we go to sleep and it's not active. But you're going to have access to something which is a third option, which is not full of activity, but not asleep. And then you get a sense of spaciousness inside. That's not, it's not felt in the body, it's felt uh, in the heart-mind space. To experience that, then we have this great step number 10, you gladden the mind. Now, PT raises the energy. I find sukha sort of settles the energy. Gladdening is a sort of somewhere in the middle where I'm glad to be in this room. I'm not super excited to be in this room. I'm not going sleepy content in this room. But I try to find a balance between the two where my mind is really happy to be where I am. And I take note of that. I take note of the beauty. I take note of what my body feels like. Any way that I can bring in a sort of uh, uplifted, uh, happy contentedness. The Pali word is pamoja. That's a whole step. It's a whole training to learn how to gladden your mind, how to gladden your heart. And how do you gladden your heart? I can't gladden your heart for you. Uh, I can probably tell a joke or two. But you learn your own heart. You learn what reflections and what is helpful for my heart uh, to feel this gladdening. So we have an English word, gladdening, and there'll be some sort of poking around, like what does that actually mean inside my heart? It's a contented, joyful well-being to have this heart of gladdening. And that mind, <clears throat> you then give fully over to the meditation subject, which here is mindfulness of breathing but it could also be loving kindness. It could be any meditative subject. You want to give your whole heart to it, your whole heart without reservation. And when you've done that, you get to experience step 12, which is when the mind is in samadhi, what's happened is that your anger and fear and competitiveness and all those afflicted, tormenting, agitating states have gone dormant. So in that moment, you're experiencing a stream of heart, a stream of mind that's not afflicted, that's not cut or hurt or haggard or agitated. And it's worth taking note of your own heart when it's not afflicted. 
the afflictions hurt and we tend to worry about them in the future and heart and remember them in the past and we there's a lot that we do in trying to mitigate our afflictions and we don't take note of the times when our hearts and minds are not afflicted so we don't identify with them we don't know the beauty of our own heart because we don't appreciate the times that it's actually not afflicted there are many times of this day no matter how you would categorize categorize it where your heart and mind were probably lightly or not at all afflicted. And it's good to know that consciously. So that's the third tetrad. And this is not something that many of us will spend a predominant amount of our time doing on this retreat. Even when I was doing long periods of practice, most of my time was working in the first eight steps of activities of mind, trying to balance out energies, being aware of my body, being aware of my breath. But every now and then, this wholeness of attention would come and I would give it over to something as simple as breathing or phrases of loving kindness or feeling my heartbeat in my, uh, throughout my body. Now, all the way through, the, the discourse says breathing in Breathing out, I experience these things. Breathing in, breathing out, I train in these things. So the breath is meant to be a support all the way through this. Then we come to the fourth tetrad, the fourth of uh, these groupings, steps 13 to 16. And this is where we use the breath, not just to soothe our attention and make it whole, but we begin to point it in a direction where our confusion actually is rooted. And this is again a whole other Dharma talk and exploration. But while breathing in and breathing out, step 13 says, I begin contemplating impermanence. It's not an intellectual contemplation. It's while I'm intimate with the stream of present time experiences, having made my mind relaxed of activity, letting my attention become more whole, giving it over to this breathing process. I begin to highlight and begin to train to appreciate how quickly things are changing. That may not be, that may not stand out in your attention, yet we're always in a stream of ever-changing experiences. So then we begin to orient our attention to take interest and begin to notice this through the field of intimacy, how many things are rippling and changing all the time. There are two confusions that we have. And intimacy breaks apart these two confusions. One confusion is that we take things that are arising at the same time as one thing. So I may look at uh, my parents and I feel love towards them and I fuse that and I think I have love for my parents. Then later my parents arise but I feel frustration with them, and now that's in conflict with what happened earlier. Many things are arising in a present moment, many different things, and they're arising from their own conditioning. But uh, through a lack of intimacy, we tend to group them all as one. So that's one type of confusion that just steady intimacy begins to show you how many moving parts there are to a present moment. The other is that we take things that are arising in two different times and we fuse them into one as if they were one thing. 
So uh, we're all doing this with each other. You're fusing me with another time that you saw me and you're calling me one person. Yet uh, I can tell you there's nothing that's really lasting all that long, uh, moment by moment, let alone throughout the days. Uh, I'm a river of experience passing through and I'm bubbling and changing all the time. Yet due to a lack of intimacy, will fuse two points in time as if they are one thing. So these are two confusions. So we begin to study impermanence, and it can be long arc impermanence, how, how a tree is growing old and then maybe falling, and then we say, ah, that's a long-term impermanent cycle. Or right in the bubbling froth of the present, we might see everything's changing. Sounds are not static, sights are not static, body sensations are not static. Intimacy won't reveal stasis. Intimacy through mindfulness will reveal nothing but a more amazing dance of things changing. So that's a training to become interested in and open up to uh, anicca, the changing characteristic of our experience. This leads to step 14, uh, the raga, not Viagra. Uh, it's an old Pali word, uh, viraga. And it's usually translated as dispassion. Uh, I translate it here as no drama. Because there's room for passion. There's uh, whole paramis that are uh, ones of conviction, of vows, of loving kindness, of service. Um, and those can be very passionate. Viraga is that once you see how impermanent things are, you lose the ground for attachment and drama of trying to own things, of trying to preserve them, of getting frustrated when you don't get things your way. Uh, in that fluidity, uh, like rivers don't have drama unless you dam them. And you dam them, it, pressure builds up, and then there's drama. But then it goes back to no, having no drama. It's just a river flowing through. So Anicca matures into this understanding of the Araga, no drama. Anicca, if you study it also, you can see how quickly things end and you can become a connoisseur of things ending. And from our ordinary perspective, things ending is uh, sort of disappointing or we get haunted sometimes by endings, especially the things we like. When we become more intimate, part of the intimacy becomes intimacy with endings. And a beautiful thing about an ending is it creates a full space for the next arising. And if things really didn't end, there would not be the space for what is arising next. So you have to mature in your relationships to endings. That's a training. That's the training of step 15. And when you're comfortable with things ending, it's another step in understanding that because things end, they're not worth clinging to. We no longer, we can build sandcastles and let the waves take them. We knew they were gonna end from the very beginning when the wave finally takes it and it becomes smooth sand again. It's almost uh, beautiful, and it is beautiful um, to see that we didn't build something for it to last forever. We built it so it would last under the conditions that it could, and then the waves took it again, like a sandcastle. That type of mind does not have the grounds to create suffering. The mind that is comfortable with endings 
a mind that can be intimate with endings and let endings be full, there's no ground to grow the forces that cause suffering and cause agitation. In step uh, 12, we've just made our confusions go quiet and it's good to know what it's like when your confusions are quiet. But up at step 16, the last of these steps, we get to see when we're very comfortable with endings and it's a training and a development to do that, that that same stream of heart and mind does not have the ingredients necessary to create suffering. It's quite comfortable with endings. That may not be accessible intuitively now, uh, or it may be, but it's the, it's the possibility of endings that uh, actually lets us to be free. And we have clean relationships to what is arising because we weren't trying to make them permanent, especially because whatever we were relating to couldn't be permanent. The ending was coming, and so we're at peace with endings. It allows the intimacy to be really clear uh, and joyful and celebratory even um, because it's not hung up by endings. That's a whole maturity that we have to develop. So in the Buddha's discourse on mindfulness of breathing, um, he gave these 16 steps of practice. If you're practicing mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness of the body, you might play with some of these. Um, I wouldn't try to play with all of them. It's 16 is a really big list. But it does map out um, how there could be progression and that breathing was a way to uh, support step-by-step processes. And then the discourse goes on. Now that you've developed this, going into the Four Foundations of Mindfulness and other teachings, so it's quite a long discourse. But I wanted to just expose you to these 16 steps. Um, they were there the whole time I was a monk. I probably looked at them, but they didn't inform me very much. And I wish somebody had actually walked me through them because I would have seen how much permission there was for delight, how much permission there was for contentment. That cultivating contentment was a, a progression on my path. And I learned that way too late. Um, surprisingly late into my practice. I sort of thought the suffering was noble. And the more I was suffering, the more I was being a good Theravadan. But actually developing contentment um, led to a lot more transformation than just enduring suffering. So I hope you uh, cultivate contentment along your way. And don't wait, don't have it be a prize down the road, but be part of what it's like as you're walking forward. Let's take a time to sit together. Let these words and the listening activity dissipate. You're gifted one of the greatest miracles as we know the universe to have made, the human body with its incredible features physical features, the way the body lives, the animal intelligence that comes with the body. You're gifted a human heart and a human mind.
And now your invitation is to keep loyally exploring an intimate connection to what it's like to be in your animal body, your human heart, your human mind. Put aside ideas of what you think you should find and let your body, your heart, and your mind teach you of how they actually work. Now it's time to take your animal for a walk. Maybe let it pee if it needs to. <laughs>